I have never been certain whether the moral of the Icarus story should only be, as is generally accepted, don't try to fly too high, or whether it might also be thought of as forget the waxen feathers and do a better job on the wings. These are the words of the famous film director Stanley Kubrick, a man who brought the reality of space travel to life on the motion picture screen in the film 2001 A Space Odyssey. His comment makes reference to a classic story from ancient Greek mythology. According to legend, Icarus was the young son of a brilliant architect and engineer named Daedalus. When Daedalus and his son were imprisoned on the island of Crete by the evil King Minos, they realized that escaping captivity would require an ingenious plan. So the brilliant Daedalus constructed a revolutionary means of escape for himself and his young son. A set of wings made from tree branches, wax, and feathers. The wings allowed them to take flight, to cross the sea towards the mainland. But Daedalus warned his son not to fly too close to the sun, knowing full well that the increased heat and temperature change would melt the wax holding together the fragile, lightweight wings. Like Greek gods, the two human beings took to the sky, soaring majestically like eagles, the first people to slip the surly bonds of earth and take flight. Yet Icarus was arrogant, and his ego soared just as high as his body did that day. He flew up towards the sun, dipped down to skim the waves of the sea, then soared up towards the sun again, with his artificial wings carrying him to ever greater altitudes. His horrified father, Daedalus, shouted at him, repeating his earlier warnings. But it was no use. As the wax of his wings melted in the sunlight, they began to disintegrate. Icarus plunged to his death, a victim of his own hubris. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant, and today we will be regaling you with a story from space history that bears a striking resemblance to the story of Daedalus and Icarus, the American Space Shuttle Program, an endeavor to build and fly a vehicle like nothing that had ever been constructed before, a hybrid between a spacecraft and an airplane, a vehicle that ushered in a new era for NASA spanning decades, a technological undertaking that was bold, challenging, and perhaps even arrogant. During its time in service, the American Space Shuttle would soar majestically and accomplish incredible endeavors in outer space, but it would come at the ultimate price, human lives. Join us today and decide for yourselves whether the Space Shuttle was a glorious triumph of human ingenuity or the tale of a modern-day Icarus. It was the culmination of the late President Kennedy's pledge to land a man on the moon by the end of the decade, spearheaded by NASA Administrator James Webb, a man who not only aspired to make President Kennedy's pledge a reality, but in so doing, to make the United States 
the preeminent world power in outer space. He succeeded in doing just that. During Webb's tenure, the United States built up an enormous space infrastructure, capable of taking us not only into Earth orbit, but to celestial bodies beyond. Today, NASA's soon-to-be-launched James Webb Telescope is named in his honor. Even so, in the late 1960s, as humanity stood poised to land on the surface of another world, there were politicians asking what was next for NASA. For Webb, it seemed that the task at hand was far too pressing to be entertaining dreams about the future. Richard Nixon had won the presidency in 1968, and shortly thereafter, Webb resigned as NASA administrator. The agency's path after Webb's tenure is recounted in detail in space historian John Logston's book, After Apollo. Replacing Webb as acting NASA administrator was Thomas Paine. With a doctorate in metallurgy from Stanford, Paine had been a submarine officer in World War II and was keenly aware just how vital a strong Navy was for any superpower. He thought that America's space infrastructure was something akin to Europe's naval power in the 1400s. Small ships with crude but functional navigational capabilities capable of crossing vast distances to new frontiers. It was on this foundation that the British and Dutch empires were founded. Paine believed that the opening vistas of space offered a similar opportunity for the United States to expand its power in the cosmic ocean of outer space. The Saturn V rocket was already tried and tested as a launch vehicle. If additional Saturn V rockets were manufactured, they could loft all kinds of payloads into Earth orbit and beyond. Some at NASA had proposed ideas for a reusable space shuttle, along with a 12-person space station, a small base on the moon, and another space station in lunar orbit, all to be completed by the late 1970s. But Payne had an even more ambitious vision, a manned mission to Mars. It would involve a national effort every bit as bold and costly as landing on the moon. Some at NASA said that preliminary plans for a Mars vehicle using nuclear propulsion were already complete. A project called NERVA, Nuclear Engine for Rocket Vehicle Application, was making steady progress. Liquid fuel could be passed through a nuclear reactor, turning it into a superheated gas used for propulsion. Far more efficient than any chemical rocket. And it could be done entirely with existing technology. Payne pushed hard to make his vision of human Mars exploration into a reality. At Payne's request, the legendary rocket scientist Werner von Braun offered a presentation on Mars missions, suggesting that with a strong national effort, humans would walk on the surface of the Red Planet by the early 1980s. Sadly, American political leaders were not sold on the idea. The United States Senate Majority Leader, Mike Mansfield, Senator Edward Kennedy, and many other congressional representatives voiced strong opposition to making any such commitment. And without the support of Congress, there would be no funding for a manned mission to Mars. The new President of the United States wasn't any more enthusiastic about Mars missions than the U.S. Congress. 
When President Nixon spoke to the American public and the Apollo astronauts themselves, he offered platitudes about humanity's passion for exploring distant frontiers. Privately, though, he derisively said, quote, I don't give a damn about space. I'm not one of those space cadets. President Nixon saw NASA as just one of many government programs competing for funding, even as the scientists of the world were filled with excitement about what new insights the exploration of the Earth's moon might hold, President Nixon was behind the scenes, pushing for the Apollo program to be canceled altogether and the remaining missions to be scrubbed. The United States had beaten the Soviet Union to the moon. Lunar missions were still a new and dangerous endeavor, and if a crew were to die during any such mission, President Nixon worried that the American public would blame him. There were even some naysayers that questioned the value of having any manned space program at all. After President Kennedy's moon pledge, NASA was given an enormous level of funding and was never once required to work within a limited budget. Now the political climate was changing rapidly, and NASA's robust budget had been steadily declining since the mid-1960s. Even the mere possibility of constructing a space station was beginning to seem more remote. But if a space station were to be built in orbit around the Earth at some point in the future, it was reasoned that some reusable vehicle would be desirable. To loft different modules into outer space during the construction process, and ferry astronaut crews back and forth from the Earth. The Apollo spacecraft that carried astronauts to the moon were one-time use only, disposable ships constructed brand new for each individual mission. It was an expensive enterprise, to say the least. If a spacecraft could be reused, then the enormous costs associated with space travel could, theoretically, be drastically reduced. Such a vehicle might make space travel almost as routine as air travel. In 1970, NASA's deputy administrator said there would be only one objective to a space shuttle program, to provide low-cost, economical space transportation. It was by no means a new idea. Von Braun had discussed the notion of a space shuttle over a decade prior, and one reusable spacecraft-aircraft hybrid had even been flown previously. It was known as the X-15, with short, small wings at its side, the long, cylindrical, arrow-shaped craft resembled a rocket more than an airplane, and it used a rocket engine. Soaring outside the Earth's atmosphere, the X-15 skimmed the edge of space. It was the fastest aircraft ever built, but it wasn't powerful enough to actually place a pilot into Earth orbit, and its rocket engines burned fuel at an incredibly high rate. When the Soviet Union sent the first human being into Earth orbit in a capsule spacecraft, the United States shifted its focus away from reusable space planes and towards space capsules. Now the Vietnam War, the American economy, unemployment, and federal government spending were all far more pressing concerns for President Nixon than the exploration of space. A cheaper space vehicle was clearly more appealing. What's more, President Nixon knew he might be facing a close election in 1972, 
and he had to win the state of California. If one of the contracts to build components of the space shuttle could be awarded to a California company, it would bring a sizable number of jobs to the state. Roughly half of all the demand for American rocket launches came not from NASA, but from the United States military and the intelligence community. Spy satellites were now a crucial asset for any superpower. If this new shuttle carried national security payloads into space, the intelligence community could also benefit from the enormous cost savings of a reusable space vehicle. NASA knew full well that the military establishment and the intelligence community would be a powerful ally to have on their side under the Nixon administration. The Department of Defense, the CIA, and the Air Force would all need to approve the design of the new space shuttle before NASA could build it. Curiously, the intelligence community demanded a massive cargo bay in the back of the space shuttle, only 15 feet wide, but 60 feet long. They offered no explanation, but were adamant that they would accept nothing less. Their demand was rigid and inflexible, and today we know why. A photographic surveillance satellite known as Hexagon Classified as above top secret, the satellite was nicknamed the Big Bird. 60 feet long, and when loaded with film, the sophisticated spy satellite weighed 30,000 pounds. At the time, spy satellites like Hexagon had to return their film to Earth in small pods that had to be picked up by a recovery team, taken back to the United States, then developed. It often took days sometimes weeks for these photographs, to reach leaders in Washington, D.C. But a space shuttle that could be launched on demand might prove far more advantageous. If a foreign policy crisis were unfolding in, say, Eastern Europe or the Soviet Union, the shuttle could be launched at a moment's notice. From low Earth orbit, the shuttle crew could then take photographs and conduct surveillance in the region in question. After a few hours in space, the shuttle could then land on a runway in Virginia, and photographs and information could reach leaders in Washington, D.C. later on that same day. The shuttle could also be used to inspect or even dismantle suspicious enemy satellites in outer space, if need be. Today, the United States Air Force has a much smaller, unmanned version of the space shuttle known as the X-37B. It has a cargo bay and can land like an aircraft, just like the space shuttle. But its missions are always kept secret. Its true purpose remains something of a mystery. Back in the early 1970s, 29 separate designs were considered for a space shuttle. One design called for constructing a massive aircraft the size of a 747 jumbo jet with 12 rocket engines at the back. Massive aircraft would have the 200-foot-long space shuttle mounted on top and flown to high altitudes. Then, the shuttle would separate from the aircraft, fire its own engines, and boost itself into low-Earth orbit. There were some, though, who were skeptical that building a truly reusable, reliable spacecraft was even possible. Secretary of the Air Force Robert Siemens 
said that it wasn't clear that the United States even had the technology to build a truly reusable spacecraft. Apollo-era flight director Chris Kraft said, quote, I don't think we should try to build the ultimate vehicle the first time. I don't think we ought to talk ourselves into the fact that the shuttle is to do every job in the space program. Early design proposals for a reusable shuttle called for an enormous, heavy vehicle, in part because it would need huge fuel tanks full of liquid hydrogen within its fuselage, as well as jet engines to enable it to fly in Earth's atmosphere. In the end, the idea of constructing a vehicle that was 100% reusable was abandoned. NASA was under increasing pressure from the Nixon administration's Office of Management and Budget to keep the costs of development as low as possible. A large, disposable external fuel tank would have to be constructed, separate from the shuttle itself. That component would not be reusable, but it would allow for a simpler, lighter weight shuttle design, since the fuel tanks would no longer need to be inside the spacecraft. Solid rocket boosters would also help to loft the shuttle into outer space. Jet engines were done away with in the new design. The shuttle would fly like a giant glider after re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. The cockpit would have a digital flight control system. Today, such systems are commonplace on modern aircraft. In the 1970s, the system was state-of-the-art. So, in 1972... President Nixon announced the United States would construct a reusable space shuttle. In his words, it would take the astronomical cost out of astronautics. Once it was built and tested, the shuttle would offer 50 to 60 space flights each year. A company called Morton Thicol would build reusable solid rocket boosters. Aerospace company Martin Marietta would build the external fuel tanks. And in Southern California, North American Rockwell would construct the space shuttle itself, promising an economic windfall of high-tech jobs to the state, just in time for President Nixon's re-election. First, a full-size test vehicle was built to show that the massive shuttle could fly as a glider. The test vehicle was named the Enterprise after Captain Kirk's spacecraft in the television program, Star Trek. The name came only after an aggressive writing campaign on the part of the television show's fans. In 1977, the Enterprise glided off the back of a 747 jet aircraft at an altitude of 15,000 feet in the air. Test pilots inside swooped down effortlessly to land the Enterprise on a dry lake bed below. The first shuttle to fly in outer space would be named Columbia, after the first American sailing ship to circumnavigate around the world. But the astronaut candidates who would fly on Columbia would no longer be relegated to military test pilots. NASA's 1978 astronaut class was the largest in the organization's history, including not just pilots, but physicists, astronomers, and meteorologists, just to name a few. 
and they were as diverse personally as they were professionally, including women and African Americans. By 1981, Columbia was ready for its first flight in outer space. The most dangerous times during any flight in outer space are actually when the spacecraft is still within the Earth's atmosphere, at launch and re-entry. And for Columbia, re-entry would be a particularly daunting trial. Past capsules, like the Apollo Command Module, used heavy, ablative heat shields, designed to allow some of the thick heat shield's material to be boiled off during the immense heat of re-entry. But like every other piece of Apollo hardware, the heat shields were one-time use only. A smaller craft, like a three-man capsule, made the heat of re-entry more manageable. A larger craft posed greater challenges. A reusable shuttle could not rely on an ablative heat shield. During re-entry, temperatures around the shuttle would build up to well over 1,000 degrees Celsius, or about 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit. As the spacecraft slammed into the Earth's atmosphere at 25 times the speed of sound, the shuttle's aluminum body could not withstand such immense temperatures, so the vehicle was fitted with over 20,000 individual lightweight ceramic silica tiles made not just to insulate the vehicle, but to balance out the heat flow. There had been countless delays in developing the special tiles. Each of them, marvels of engineering, an individual tile was mostly made out of air. It could withstand the heat of a blowtorch just inches from its surface, but seconds later, it would cool just enough to touch with one's bare hand. The tiles were all individually glued onto the fuselage, but when Columbia was removed from its hangar, it was found that thousands of the tiles had fallen off. It didn't inspire any confidence in the new system. The tiles were all carefully and meticulously reattached before launch. NASA would later describe Columbia's first flight as the boldest test flight in the history of space travel. Previous rockets, like the Saturn V, had always seen unmanned test flights before crews were placed on board. But the first flight of the shuttle in outer space would be crewed by two men. Ejector seats were installed in the cockpit in case of an emergency, and both astronauts donned parachutes and spacesuits. Commanding the mission was veteran astronaut John Young. On Apollo 16, Young had become the ninth man to walk on the moon. He was the most experienced astronaut in NASA at the time, having flown twice on Project Gemini and twice on Project Apollo. At his side was Robert Crippen, a naval aviator that had logged thousands of hours flying jet aircraft, but had yet to fly in outer space. Strapped into the cockpit of the new experimental reusable space plane, the two men in pressure suits anxiously awaited the countdown. T minus 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4. We've gone for main engine start. 
the launch was a success, and when the solid rocket boosters had done their job, they were jettisoned to fall back to Earth, where they were recovered in the Atlantic Ocean. Young and Crippen orbited the Earth 36 times, performing one critical test after another, meeting all 144 flight objectives, including the opening of Columbia's enormous payload bay doors. Yet as they looked out the shuttle windows at the blue, cloud-covered sphere of the Earth beneath them, the men caught sight of something rather concerning in the foreground of their vision. At the rear of the shuttle, there were several thermal tiles missing. In the words of John Young, it looked as though someone had taken big bites out of them. The U.S. Air Force used one of their own spy satellites to take photographs of the undercarriage of the space shuttle to assess the damage. From the beginning, it was always accepted that the space shuttle could afford to lose a few of its tiles and still re-enter the Earth's atmosphere safely. So after two days in low Earth orbit, the two men attempted to do just that. Columbia withstood the searing heat of re-entry, gliding through the air on its delta-shaped wings towards Edwards Air Force Base in California. The two astronauts experienced just three Gs at re-entry, rather than the seven Gs experienced by some of America's original Project Mercury astronauts. Still over 40,000 feet in the air, the shuttle's tactical air navigation system helped to direct Young and Crippen towards the runway below. With thousands of spectators watching in the California desert, still traveling at 200 miles per hour, the two astronauts touched down. Welcome home, Columbia. Beautiful, beautiful. So I have to take it up the hangar, Joe. We're going to dust it off first. In all, it was found that 148 tiles had been shattered, and 16 tiles were missing altogether. But Columbia had thousands of tiles, and it wasn't enough to cause any serious harm to the vehicle, let alone the crew. Even so, refurbishing the shuttle and preparing it for another launch proved to be far, far more time-consuming and expensive than previously predicted. Halfway around the world, Soviet government officials quietly took note of America's newest spacecraft, and they knew full well that it provided a tactical Cold War advantage that the Soviet Union did not possess. Soviet space capsules were not reusable. They couldn't be launched at a moment's notice, and they had no payload bays to carry satellites into orbit. The shuttle's payload bay was 60 feet long, yet the United States had no public plans for any space probes or commercial satellites of such a size. But the Soviets thought that maybe America's Department of Defense had some sort of military payload in mind. In 1983, America's second space shuttle, the Challenger, was constructed. In all, five separate space shuttles would be built during the program. The crew cabin of the shuttle was far more spacious than the cramped capsules of the Apollo era, and later missions flew with larger crews. Since NASA expected space travel to become routine, the ejector seats and parachutes from previous missions were removed, and crews flew in comfortable flight suits 
rather than bulky pressure suits. In 1982, Columbia carried a payload called the Cryogenic Infrared Radiance Instrument, designed to test infrared sensors for a future spy satellite. Other mysterious space payloads would be deployed from the shuttle in the coming years, sometimes with very little information being provided from NASA. In the summer of 1983, two decades after the Soviet Union sent the first woman into outer space, physicist Sally Ride became the first American woman to fly in space. Helping to deploy two communication satellites from the shuttle's cargo bay. As a teenager, Sally Ride had been enraptured by the sight of Neil Armstrong taking humanity's first steps on the surface of the moon, an event that she and millions had seen from their home television sets. It inspired Ride to study physics and ultimately to become an astronaut. Introverted and deeply private, Ride avoided public appearances but she loved engaging with elementary and middle school students, telling them that they would one day take the first steps on the planet Mars. It wasn't until decades later, after Ride's death, the world would learn she wasn't merely America's first female astronaut, but the world's first gay astronaut as well. Later that same summer, in 1983, Guyon Bluford, the first African-American astronaut, would fly in space for the first time. His shuttle mission would be commanded by Richard Truly, a man who, just a few years later, would become the administrator of NASA. It wasn't until sometime after launch, when it was discovered that, due to severe corrosion, one of the solid rocket boosters had almost ruptured at takeoff, which could have been catastrophic. But Bluford and his fellow crew members accomplished all 54 of their planned mission objectives, and he would fly aboard four separate shuttle missions total during his career as an astronaut. Bluford later said, quote, I wanted to set the standard and do the best job possible. But his career wasn't impressive merely for the color of his skin or his number of shuttle flights. Before becoming an astronaut, Bluford was an officer in the U.S. Air Force, and flew a total of 144 combat missions. Like the legendary Buzz Aldrin before him, Bluford was extremely well-educated. He earned a Ph.D. in aerospace engineering years before he joined NASA. Adding to his impressive education, while an astronaut, Bluford went back to school to earn a master's degree in business administration. And after his retirement from NASA in 2002, Bluford founded his own engineering and business consulting firm. In late 1984, the Washington Post reported that an upcoming shuttle mission would be launching an American spy satellite. The Soviet government almost certainly took note of such news. In fact, U.S. Defense Secretary Caspar Weinberger was furious the news had been made public at all and accused the Washington Post of journalistic irresponsibility, even though the satellite in question was mentioned in only very general and vague terms. In 1985, the shuttle Challenger flew with a record eight-person crew. It was the largest single crew to ever fly in outer space in human history. But for all the historic firsts of the space shuttle program, it seemed apparent 
that the vehicle could not deliver on what it had promised. Cheap, reliable, routine, frequent launches into outer space. It was originally claimed that the shuttle would fly 50 to 60 flights per year, or, to put it another way, the shuttle would offer a flight into outer space nearly once a week. But even years after the maiden voyage of Columbia, with multiple space shuttles in the fleet, there were an average of just four or five flights a year, with extensive time and money spent in between rebuilding and refurbishing the craft. The thermal protection tiles in particular often needed to be replaced in large numbers. As early as 1985, Professor Alex Rowland, a former member of NASA's History Division and our guest in next week's After Talk, stated that the shuttle had been oversold to the American people, that the program had been misguided, uninspired, and wasteful. This is what he had to say to Universe University. They engaged a sales pitch which was as old as the Department of Defense called buying in, and defense contractors have been doing this for decades. That is, um, you promise um, a deliverable product at a certain time and at a certain cost and with certain specifications of its capabilities, and then you start developing it. And lo and behold, you find it's actually going to take longer and cost more and probably achieve less than you first said. But by then, the Congress and the administration have bought into it. In other words, they have so many sunk costs in this big project that they dare not let it fail. And so you'll get the funding to make up the difference. And it seems pretty clear to me that whether or not NASA consciously sat down and said, we should engage in buying in, that's what they were doing. And it was a pretty familiar Washington scam in the age of the military industrial complex. It was being done all the time. And furthermore, there's a certain reasonableness about this because the big weapons programs that the Department of Defense was doing were like um, the big space programs that NASA was doing. Nobody really knew exactly how to do these things. They required more research and development. And so it was almost impossible to predict with any accuracy how much they were really going to cost. But having allowed them that, it's nonetheless true that they were also, they were always lowballing the cost and they knew that they were lowballing it. To reinvigorate public support for the space shuttle program, President Ronald Reagan announced the Teacher in Space Project. Thousands of educators applied to be the first teacher, and indeed the first American civilian, to fly in outer space. In the end, Krista McAuliffe, a 37-year-old high school teacher from New Hampshire, was selected. Students around the nation would watch the launch on TV, and McAuliffe would even offer a televised lesson to students nationwide while in orbit around the Earth. But all was not well behind the scenes of the space shuttle program. According to one shuttle astronaut named Norm Thagard, the shuttle's solid rocket boosters, built by a corporation called Morton Thicol, were inherently more dangerous than the liquid-fueled rockets that NASA had launched previously. For one thing, once they were ignited, 
they could not be shut down. Bluford's 1983 flight had seen a very, very close call that almost ended in disaster. Again and again, the boosters were subjected to tremendous heat and pressure before being refurbished and reused. One major point of contention was a component called the O-ring, a circular rubber seal designed to contain the immense pressures inside of the solid rocket boosters at launch. The O-rings were especially sensitive to low temperatures, losing their elasticity and becoming brittle below 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Luckily, thus far, all the launches from Central Florida's Kennedy Space Center had taken place during warm weather. These O-rings would determine the course of the life and careers of two engineers in Utah, Roger Beaujolais and Bob Ebling. In the summer of 1985, Beaujolais wrote a memo where he said the following, quote, This letter is written to ensure that management is fully aware of the seriousness of the current O-ring erosion problem in the joints. From an engineering standpoint, it would result in a catastrophe of the highest order, the loss of human life. Concern was beginning to build among Morton Thicol employees that the company's management weren't taking the O-ring problem seriously enough. A few months later, in October of 1985, Bob Ebling, determined to shake managers out of their apathy, wrote another memo. The first sentence of the memo read HELP in all capital letters with an exclamation point at the end. Ebling thought that it just might be dramatic enough to get managers at the highest levels to at least read the first sentence of the memo. But that memo also seemed to fall on deaf ears. The climate at NASA was also different than it had been in years past. Over the years, NASA safety and quality control staff had been cut by 71%. Government agencies were now increasingly seen as sources of waste, fraud, and abuse. In President Reagan's inaugural address, he famously made a brazen declaration about his own country's government. In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. In January of 1986, a space shuttle stood on the launch pad, ready for flight. But a weather prediction of rain and high winds caused the launch to be scrubbed. The following day, a tiny screw was stuck within the shuttle's crew hatch. Difficulty removing the screw caused yet another launch opportunity to be scrubbed. In all, there were a total of six launch attempts that all had to be canceled. Politicians and NASA administrators were quickly growing impatient. Worse still was the fact that on day four of the mission, teacher Krista McAuliffe had a lesson that she was going to offer to school children via television broadcast in Earth orbit. If they launched the shuttle on Tuesday, the broadcast could take place on Friday. If the launch had to be postponed to Wednesday or Thursday, then the broadcast would be pushed into the weekend, and there would be no children in school to watch it. 
for the Teacher in Space program to serve its public relations purposes, they needed to launch on Tuesday. The weather in central Florida had been unusually cold that January, and condensation on the side of the space shuttle had turned into icicles. The temperature the following morning was forecast to be just above 30 degrees Fahrenheit, perhaps even colder. At Morton Thicol, a manager came into Ebling's office and asked him if it would be safe to launch in temperatures of 18 degrees. Ebling was shocked. It wasn't safe to launch at 20 degrees or 30 degrees, let alone 18. Ebling said no. The O-rings wouldn't seal properly. Hot gases would seep out of the joints of the solid rocket boosters, and they would explode. The vice president of engineering at Morton Thicol agreed. He said he wouldn't recommend launching below 53 degrees Fahrenheit. Engineer Roger Beaujolais was always known as a force to be reckoned with when he had data on his side. In a meeting on the night before the launch, practically shouting at his own senior managers and NASA administrators, Beaujolais threw down a stack of photographs showing images of O-rings that had been damaged and eroded in cold temperatures. NASA manager Lawrence Malloy snapped, looking at him and saying, quote, when the hell do you want me to launch, Beaujolais? Next April? Beaujolais and Ebling strongly recommended canceling the next day's launch. NASA's deputy director said that he was appalled by their recommendations. But if Morton Thicol's managers all agreed, he would accept the recommendation not to launch. The Thicol general manager held a private meeting his three vice presidents and asked them all, point blank, if they would approve a launch. Two of them said that they would approve it, but the third vice president voiced his objection. With a heavy sigh, Morton Thicol's general manager looked at his reluctant vice president, the lone voice of opposition among the managers, and said, quote, Take off your engineering hat and put on your management hat. And just like that, the reluctant man changed his vote. They called the Kennedy Space Center on the phone and said that they would all approve a launch the following day. Beaujolais was crestfallen. When he returned home later that night, he didn't say a word to his wife. What's wrong, Roger? She asked. Furrowing his brow, Beaujolais said, quote, We just had a meeting to go launch tomorrow and kill the astronauts. The following morning, convinced that the shuttle was going to blow up on the launch pad at the moment of ignition, Beaujolais told Ebling that he didn't want to watch the catastrophe on live television. Ebling implored him to look towards the television screen anyway. To both men's shock and surprise, the shuttle didn't blow up on the launch pad. Its boosters roared to life, and it ascended into the air. But the superheated gases quickly scorched through the failing O-rings. Sixty seconds into the flight, 
a plume of flames shooting from the joints of the solid rocket booster acted like a blowtorch on the side of the external fuel tank. In an instant, it ruptured into a massive fireball that consumed two million liters of fuel almost instantaneously, just 73 seconds after launch. The crew cabin of the shuttle actually survived the explosion and the astronauts activated their emergency oxygen. But it was all in vain. All ejection seats had been removed from the space shuttle. The crew had no pressure suits and no parachutes. Plummeting from an altitude of over 40,000 feet in the atmosphere, the crew cabin impacted the Atlantic Ocean at 200 miles per hour, killing all seven of the astronauts instantly. It marked the first time in NASA history that they had lost any crew during a mission. Beaujolais and Ebling knew exactly what had happened. One Thiokol engineer, Alan McDonald, would later say that he still refuses to call the Challenger disaster an accident, because the very word, accident, implies that the incident was unexpected and difficult to foresee or prevent. On the day of the disaster, phone lines at the Kennedy Space Center were disconnected to prevent NASA employees from talking to reporters. No one was permitted to leave the complex. The devastated families of the Space Shuttle Challenger crew members all filed lawsuits or accepted legal settlements from the United States government and other subcontractors. NASA manager Lawrence Malloy, the man who appeared visibly irritated with Beaujolais on the eve of the launch, found himself named in a $15 million criminal negligence claim. He promptly resigned from NASA. In the aftermath of the disaster, the Rogers Commission, led by former Secretary of State William Rogers, began an inquiry into the incident. In the late 1960s, safety issues at NASA were promptly reported. By the time the shuttle program came about, there was far less written documentation of safety problems and fewer requirements to report such problems to management. Space travel was supposed to be routine by this time. NASA administrators were pushing hard to demonstrate that it was, to launch flights more frequently, and to do so on time. Astronaut Mike Mullane later said that the organizational culture of NASA was now tantamount to a normalization of deviance. Shuttle flights would be grounded for over two years. In the decades that followed, most payloads for the United States military and intelligence community were removed from planned shuttle flights, launched instead on expendable rockets. The shuttle just wasn't considered reliable enough. By some estimates, it cost billions of dollars to reconfigure these satellites to launch on expendable rockets. But the shuttle simply couldn't deliver on the launches it had promised. Famous physicist Richard Feynman said that NASA had been so highly respected in the United States, the Challenger disaster was something akin to the climax of the film The Wizard of Oz. In the film, what at first glance appears to be a great and powerful wizard is revealed to be little more than a mortal man cowering behind a curtain. 
Beaujolais was so depressed in the aftermath of the disaster, he fell physically ill. But he testified before the Rogers Commission, telling Congress exactly what happened. When he spoke about managers at Thiokol and NASA administrators, he drew the ire and disdain of both factions. He was an outcast, personally and professionally. But as soon as he finished offering his congressional testimony, he encountered a familiar face. Sally Ride, the first American woman in space. She made eye contact with him. Saying nothing, she simply walked up to him and gave him a warm hug. Beaujolais would later tell reporters that she was the only person at NASA to offer him any support at all. He would spend his life traveling around the world, speaking about corporate ethics. In one later interview, he said, quote, I fought like hell to stop that launch. I'm so torn up inside, I can hardly talk about it. Even now. When Beaujolais died decades later, his wife said that he was a man who always stood by his work and that he always sought to live by honor and ethics. Then, in 1988, the Soviet Union shocked the Western world with the launch of their own space shuttle. Almost exactly the same size and design as the American space shuttle, it was named Buran, from the Russian word for snowstorm, and it had a massive payload bay. For years now, the engineering schematics of the shuttle had been available to the general public, not to mention that there had been countless highly publicized shuttle launches broadcast on American television. Instead of solid rocket boosters, though, the Buran relied on a massive, liquid-fueled rocket attached to its side called Energia. Unlike America's solid rocket boosters, Energia's rocket could be shut off altogether in an emergency. Such a massive booster rocket allowed the Buran to carry even heavier payloads into outer space than the American Space Shuttle. It also had jet engines mounted on its side, so it could operate like an aircraft and fly anywhere in the world once in the Earth's atmosphere. If Buran had to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere in a part of the world that was unfriendly to the Soviet Union, it could simply choose to fly back home instead. The Buran could even be flown and landed remotely, with no crew. It might be the ideal rescue vehicle for stranded astronauts on a Soviet space station. In the fall of 1988, astonished Western spectators watched as the Buran took its maiden voyage into outer space and re-entered the Earth's atmosphere, landing by itself on a Soviet runway, without a single crew member aboard. Much like the American space shuttle, the Soviet shuttle was extremely expensive to operate, and the Soviet Union already had their Soyuz capsule to transport astronauts into outer space. When the Soviet Union's government collapsed in 1991, the Buran project was abandoned, and the Buran itself was left to rust and rot. Eventually, the American shuttle did fly in outer space once again, though, 
it was the only operational spacecraft that America had to launch astronauts, and there was little funding or support to develop a new vehicle from scratch. The shuttle flew astronauts from multiple different countries and launched countless additional satellites. In 1989, the space shuttle Atlantis launched the robotic Galileo probe, which became the first space probe in history to orbit the planet Jupiter. In the 1990s, NASA was faced with an intriguing proposition from one of its former astronauts, John Glenn. In 1962, Project Mercury astronaut John Glenn became the first American in history to orbit the Earth. He then retired from NASA, and in 1974, he was elected to the United States Senate. He went on to win four consecutive terms, a record for his state. Even though he was in his late 70s, he had been campaigning for years for NASA to send him back into outer space aboard the shuttle, to act as a sort of human guinea pig to test the effects of aging in outer space. After all, the effects of being weightless for long periods of time seemed to mimic the effects of aging on the human body. Finally, NASA agreed. In 1998, Senator John Glenn became the oldest human being in history to visit outer space at 77 years old, nearly four decades after his first trip into Earth orbit. Glenn's brainwaves, respiration, and sleep were measured, just to name a few. In all, 21 different physical parameters were monitored, and eight days later, he and the rest of the crew returned to Earth, safe and sound. Then, at long last, with a new millennium about to dawn, the space shuttle became a crucial component of a collaborative effort involving multiple nations, the plan to build an international space station. NASA administrators had originally advocated for the shuttle, in part so that it could build space stations. Yet for nearly two decades, the shuttle built no space stations, and often had no real destination to fly to in outer space. Now a massive structure in outer space was beginning to take shape. The space shuttle Endeavour lofted the first American module into orbit. But the shuttle was now aging rapidly. State-of-the-art in 1981, the reusable vehicle was now showing signs of wear and tear. In 2002, the New York Times reported that NASA had gone internet shopping on eBay, purchasing an enormous amount of old medical equipment to pry out valuable 8086 chips the same chips that had powered IBM's first personal computer in 1981. Considered obsolete in every other industry, these chips were desperately needed to operate the space shuttle, and they were becoming increasingly harder to find. Then in early 2003, during another supposedly routine launch of the oldest space shuttle in the fleet, Columbia, a small chunk of insulation from the external fuel tank broke off and struck the shuttle's wing at liftoff, impacting it hundreds of miles per hour. The shuttle made it into Earth orbit without any other mishaps, but ground controllers in Houston watched the footage of this chunk of insulation about the size of a suitcase strike the wing at liftoff. It wasn't the first time that this had taken place. 
In 2002, debris was seen breaking off the shuttle Atlantis. It was certainly possible that falling debris could have damaged the shuttle's thermal tiles, but from Columbia's first flight in 1981, it was believed that the shuttle could lose plenty of tiles and still re-enter the Earth's atmosphere safely. Damaged tiles had never caused anything catastrophic to occur during re-entry on past missions, so why would it be a problem now? Tragically, the American Space Shuttle program was in for another rude awakening. On the day that the spacecraft had planned to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere, President George W. Bush made this speech to the American public. My fellow Americans, this day has brought terrible news and great sadness to our country. At 9 o'clock this morning, Mission Control in Houston lost contact with our space shuttle Columbia. A short time later, debris was seen falling from the skies above Texas. The Columbia's lost. There are no survivors. On board was a crew of seven, Colonel Rick Husband, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Anderson, Commander Laurel Clark, Captain David Brown, Commander William McCool, Dr. Kulpna Shavla, and Ilan Ramon, a colonel in the Israeli Air Force. These men and women assumed great risk in the service to all humanity. In an age when space flight has come to seem almost routine, it is easy to overlook the dangers of travel by rocket and the difficulties of navigating the fierce outer atmosphere of the Earth. Indeed, any spacecraft re-entering the Earth's outer atmosphere encounters intense heat and pressure. Yet despite some close calls during the early days of spaceflight, American astronauts on Project Mercury, Project Gemini, and Project Apollo always return safely to Earth after every single flight in outer space. Their ablative heat shields always worked. On that day in 2003, the damaged tiles on the orbiter's wing resulted in the disintegration of the shuttle. Pieces of the shuttle rained down over the Earth like meteorites in a fiery and tragic display. Two of the five shuttles that had been built had now met catastrophic ends, claiming the lives of their entire crews. The shuttle program manager at NASA had been responsible for ensuring crew safety, but also for ensuring timely launches and keeping costs low. It was something of a conflict of interest, and it was always a dangerous and volatile balancing act to accomplish both successfully. It wasn't necessarily that the shuttle always re-entered the Earth's atmosphere safely, it was merely that NASA had been lucky, and on that day in 2003, their luck finally ran out. The shuttle would be grounded for another two years, and yet another congressional inquiry would ensue. The Columbia Accident Investigation Board concluded that the shuttle was an aging spacecraft. Professor Alex Rowland had strongly and prophetically criticized the shuttle nearly two decades prior, and was called to testify. The investigation board said that the shuttle was a complex and risky system 
they concluded that the odds of losing another crew were increasing with each passing flight. But the United States had already committed its shuttles to the space station project. For all its dangerous flaws, the shuttle could haul enormous quantities of cargo into outer space and would be needed to transport new space station modules. Shortly after the Columbia disaster, President Bush announced that once the International Space Station was complete, the American space shuttle would be retired. In 2011, the shuttle flew its final mission. In 2007, NASA Administrator Michael D. Griffin stated that if the United States had merely continued to produce Saturn V rockets, as some policymakers had suggested in the 1970s, they could have offered more manned launches each year for the same cost as the space shuttle, and retained the United States' capability of traveling not only within Earth orbit, but beyond low Earth orbit, to the moon and elsewhere. If we had simply continued to rely on a previously proven launch vehicle, we might have returned to the moon or even landed on Mars a long time ago. In 1970, NASA's own deputy administrator said that there was one objective for the space shuttle program, to provide low-cost, economical space transportation. By every quantifiable, objective metric, the shuttle failed at what NASA's deputy administrator said was its only objective. In 1972, when the shuttle program was announced, it was claimed that the new craft would be able to launch payloads into space at a cost of just $118 per pound. In reality, the actual cost of launching payloads on the shuttle was a whopping $27,000 per pound. On average, a single American shuttle launch cost a total of $1.5 billion. Let us compare that cost with the cost of the Russian Soyuz spacecraft which still carries astronauts to the International Space Station to this very day. It is considered one of the safest space vehicles in history, and has been flying in space for over 50 years, far longer than the length of the shuttle program. While the Russian space program is not nearly as open about the costs of their own launches as the United States is, by all estimates, the Soyuz cost 80 to $100 million to launch. But even if it cost two or three hundred million dollars to launch, the Soyuz would still be a far cry from the shuttle's $1.5 billion launch cost. The shuttle did not make space travel cheaper. It made it more expensive. It was an enormous financial burden on NASA, relegating human spaceflight to low Earth orbit for decades. Just imagine if the money spent on every single shuttle launch in history had been spent on sending human beings to Mars instead. And that's just an analysis of the financial costs of the shuttle program, putting aside the fact that the shuttle claimed the lives of 14 astronauts, making it not only the most expensive vehicle in space history, but also the deadliest. Some might say that hindsight is 2020, and that such an analysis of the space shuttle seems obvious only now that the shuttle program has ended. But remember, 
historian and professor Alex Rowland, made these same criticisms in 1985, when the shuttle had been flying for just four years. In 1986, at the inquiry into the Challenger disaster, physicist Richard Feynman declared that NASA's original estimates of one flight failure per 100,000 flights were clearly ridiculous. So he anonymously polled NASA's own engineers himself, asking them what they thought the odds of an in-flight failure would be. On average, their estimates were closer to one failure for every 100 flights. Not one failure for every 100,000 flights. But in hindsight, the real failure rate of the shuttle was much worse. One failure for every 68 flights. American astronaut Norm Thagard flew aboard the space shuttle, but he is also famous for being the first American in history to ride aboard the Soyuz spacecraft. In regards to the shuttle program, Thagard said this, quote, I thought having a reusable vehicle would be the way to go. I realize now that that's probably a mistake. The shuttle was tremendously complicated. In the 1960s, capsules were the preferred mode of transportation to outer space. Project Mercury sent the first American astronauts into orbit. The space flights of Project Gemini made strides in space technology because they built upon the foundational knowledge gained from Project Mercury before them. Then, taking the lessons of Project Gemini, Project Apollo built upon them even further, ultimately carrying the first astronauts to the moon. President Kennedy's moon pledge might have been bold, but it was accomplished step by step. It opened a door to the universe, for missions to the moon and beyond. Then, in 1972, President Nixon took that body of knowledge and flung it aside, opting to build a profoundly different space vehicle, a reusable shuttle. Most of the lessons learned in the previous decade of space exploration were simply not applicable to the shuttle project. But after all, if NASA could land men on the moon, surely it was thought they could meet another extremely ambitious objective. If the shuttle had been an experimental project intended to last only a few years and meet the modest objective of building and testing a reusable manned spacecraft, then it would have been a resounding, monumental success. In 1981, the American space shuttle was a marvel of ingenuity. But ultimately, NASA's extraordinarily optimistic predictions that the shuttle would make space travel routine were false. At worst, these predictions were a failed, multi-billion dollar policy experiment of hubris, that claimed American lives and kept astronauts trapped in low Earth orbit for decades, risking still more lives in an unreliable, aging vehicle, not to travel to another world or set foot on a distant frontier, but to ferry satellites into outer space. The lessons of the space shuttle program bear a striking resemblance to those in the legend of Icarus. But there were also a few men just as brilliant as Daedalus. Prophets that warned policymakers and engineers not to fly too close to the sun.
Air Force Secretary Robert Siemens, NASA's Flight Director Chris Kraft, and historian Alex Rowland. Today, the United States' hopes for space exploration to the moon and beyond rest on NASA's Orion spacecraft, a small capsule with an ablative heat shield not entirely unlike the Apollo-era command module. We have truly gone back to the future. Imagine what might have happened if the United States simply continued to produce the Saturn V rocket and command module spacecraft, just as the Soviets continued to produce the Soyuz. Or, alternatively, imagine what might have happened if NASA saw the shuttle merely as a stepping stone, like Project Mercury or Project Gemini, rather than an end unto itself. Even as SpaceX reuses its own boosters, like with the shuttle, they invest huge amounts of money to refurbish them for each flight. Some aerospace and astrospace engineers claim that reusability might not be the key to affordable space travel. If reusable spacecraft are just as expensive as disposable ones, or more expensive, then what's the point of building them at all? But despite all of these harsh realities and hard-learned lessons, the legacy of the American Space Shuttle is not entirely negative. The shuttle program did make one unequivocal, invaluable contribution to space exploration and astronomy. In 1990, the most massive and most versatile telescope in history was deployed in Earth orbit from the Space Shuttle's cargo bay the Hubble Space Telescope. Its first images were grainy and mediocre due to an aberration in its mirror. But a different shuttle mission, just a few years later, allowed astronauts to personally repair it during a spacewalk. The subsequent resulting images of stars and nebulae were impressive. But perhaps the most striking image came in the winter of 1995. In a peculiar experiment, the Hubble telescope's unparalleled magnifying power was turned to a dark, starless patch of sky near the constellation Ursa Major. For ten consecutive days, running through Christmas of that year, hundreds of lengthy exposures were taken for a total of 100 hours, far longer than any past exposures, in an attempt to pick up even the faintest bit of light that might be hiding in the image. The result was shocking. Thousands of tiny points of light, unbelievably far away. But they were not stars or nebulae. Each of the thousands of points of light was an entire galaxy. And each point of light contained billions of individual stars. More striking still, each galaxy was well over 12 billion light-years away from the planet Earth. The known universe itself is nearly 14 billion years old. We weren't just looking out into space, we were looking back into time, to the infancy of the universe itself. The image became known as the Hubble Deep Field. The American Space Shuttle, for all its flaws, not only deployed the Hubble telescope, 
it allowed astronauts to fix it, improve it, and maintain it. Perhaps someday, if human beings manage to avoid extinction, our distant ancestors might behold the wonders of the outer boundaries of the universe, not through telescopes, but in person, learning not only from our successes in space travel, but from our failures as well. If we, as a species, manage to make it that far, it will be because we avoided self-destruction, overcame our own hubris, and because our wings did not melt in the process. The brilliant American rocket pioneer Robert H. Goddard once said, quote, Aiming for the stars, both literally and figuratively, is a problem to occupy generations so that no matter how much progress one makes, there is always the thrill of just beginning.